This being the first Sunday of the month, Communion Sunday, I'm going to have another standalone doctrinal sermon, this time on substitution, trying to cover the main doctrines of the church, um, and substitution certainly is one of them. So this topic of substitution is, let me define it. Substitution is Christ taking our place in receiving the punishment that we deserve. Christ taking our places to receive the punishment that we all deserve as sinners. That's the definition. What about the necessity of substitution? Well, it's logical, isn't it? That God being righteous and holy, and that all of us being unrighteous and sinful, something had to be done. And all sin had to be punished. God doesn't wink at sin. God doesn't grade on the curve that she's more of a sinner than him or him more of a sinner than her. When we sin, the soul that sins dies, it says in Ezekiel. So we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And all sin must be dealt with. God can't just look the other way, grade on the curve, or wink at sin. All sin must be punished. That is God's justice. That is God's holiness, etc. And so because God is righteous and holy, all of us are unrighteous and sinful, all sin must be punished. Something had to give. And the options were two. Either we are punished for our own sin in hell forever, or Christ received our punishment as our substitute on the cross. My scuba story going into communion table. You gotta carry, either you're gonna carry your own weight, which leads to hell, or you're gonna acknowledge that Jesus Christ paid your sin debt and takes you to the surface forgiven, hopeful, forgiven and hopeful because of his grace. So it's definition, it's necessity, substitution, it's dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't have the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have substitution. If we don't have substitution, we don't have forgiveness. If we don't have forgiveness, we're not justified before God. If we're not justified before God, we are separated and alienated from him, and there's no hope, but we have Jesus Christ. And substitution is totally dependent on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In order to absorb God's righteous wrath, deserved wrath against sins, our Lord Jesus, six things, or is it seven? It's six things I want to share with you from the, from the scriptures. Number one, in order to absorb God's wrath that you deserved against your sins, Jesus Christ had to give himself in every way. Titus 2.14, he who gave himself, that is, it's the middle voice in the Greek grammar, he did the action to himself. It wasn't done to him. He who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us, purchase us out of the slave marketplace of sin to set us free to do his bidding in righteousness, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Yes, for Jesus Christ to be our substitute and to take the wrath of God that we all deserve, he had to give himself in every way. But there's more. He gave himself as a ransom. 1 Timothy 2.6, again, every aspect of the substitutionary atonement of Christ is an action which he performed on himself as a volunteer, not as a victim. And 1 Timothy 2.6 says that he gave himself as a ransom for all. He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 
To absorb our wrath, he gave himself in every way. He gave himself as a ransom. Third, he suffered. To absorb the wrath of the heavenly Father for you and me, he had to suffer. Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death. Death is separation. Before Jesus Christ became incarnate, he was incapable of dying. But when humanity was fused or welded together with divinity in the hypostatic union, Philippians 2, then he was capable of physically dying in his humanity. And in his humanity, he was equally able to suffer, to feel pain, to feel physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain, all the kinds of pains that we would suffer. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, we've sung about that in this service, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death, physical death, and briefly spiritual death when he was separated in relationship from his heavenly father on the cross when the Palestinian midday sunlight skies were darkened as night. And he said to his dad, why have you forsaken me? Temporarily, the father forsook the son because the son in those moments and hours on the cross was our substitute, our sin bearer. And so to absorb the wrath of God, Jesus Christ gave himself in every way. He gave himself as a ransom. He suffered, and fourth, he was our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, Jesus was sinless, to be sin for us, instead of us, in the place of us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Christ. Your righteousness before God is not in you. My righteousness before God is not in me. Our righteousness before God is in Christ, amen? Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he, Jesus, was our substitute. And Galatians 3, verse 13 tells us that in being our substitute, Christ became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. 100% of us were under the curse of the law. 100% of us were guilty lawbreakers. It says in James, if you break one of God's laws, it's like you've broken all of God's laws. So Galatians 3.13, again, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. How did that happen? How did Christ become a curse for us? Christ took the wrath of the Father, which we all deserved as lawbreakers. Jesus broke no laws, but we have. He took the wrath of God, the justified wrath of God, for lawbreaking, our lawbreaking. And justice, divine justice, was meted out. God the Father didn't wink at sin. God the Father didn't say sin was inconsequential. God the Father didn't say, well, to be human, you just sin. I'm not worried about it. No. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, where the Israelites were told to bury those that were executed by the law, by, by contravening the law in a capital crime. They were to bury those people who had been hung to death on a tree by nightfall. 
They weren't to be in the camp of Israel hanging dead from a tree beyond the nightfall of the day they were executed because that would have been a curse to the whole camp. Jesus Christ became a curse for us simply, profoundly, by being hung on a wooden cross until he suffocated, asphyxiated, expired. Which brings us to the other thing that Jesus did to absorb God's wrath for our sins was that he died for sins once for all. Jesus died for your sins once for all. Unlike the Roman Catholic Church that re-crucifies Christ every mass, they believe that every mass, the priest changes the host into the body of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ, and every mass, they believe, if they understand Roman Catholic doctrine, that they're re-crucifying Christ every time they do mass. We don't believe that. We believe that Jesus Christ died once in history for all time. Why? 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died and suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Yes, Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath that I deserve and the wrath that you deserve as sinners by these things. Giving himself in every way, giving himself as a ransom, suffering, being our substitute, becoming a curse for us, and dying physically for our sins once for all. Let's move from that to substitution. It's dependence on God the Father solving our sin problem. Number one, God the Father is both just and the justifier. He's not just just. He's equally as the justifier of the unjust, you and me. God the Father is both just and he is the justifier of repentant sinners who put their faith in Christ. But there's more. God the Father is both faithful slash consistent and forgiving slash compassionate. God the Father is both faithful slash consistent and forgiving slash compassionate. Third, God the Father is both judge and the one who's given us the Redeemer. I'm told that in the history of New York City, there was a judge who had brought before him a poor man who was charged with stealing a loaf of bread. The judge heard the case and the evidence, and he sentenced the man who stole the loaf of bread to a $50 fine. But then the judge looked over the courtroom, and he charged every person in the courtroom that night $10 to get $50 to pay the man's fine for him. And why did the judge do that? Because he said, shame on us for living in a city that's so callous and uncaring that a man had to steal a loaf of bread to feed his family. But you know, that illustration doesn't go far enough. Because God as judge didn't charge any other person to pay the sin debt that Jesus paid. God the Father himself paid our sin debt as sinners by giving up his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have one son. I wouldn't let him die for any of you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I wouldn't. God is one son, and he let Jesus die for us, our substitute. 
Let's go to substitutions outworking. How did this work? How did this happen? It's outworking, number one, involved the incarnation. Christ, the God-man, had to be among us. He had to have a human, truly human element to his character. As I said, in the incarnation, divinity, being God, was joined to humanity, being human. Mystery happened. It was predicted by Genesis 3, verse 15. Past, not Pastor, uh, brother Brian Marie took this up in adult Sunday school. By the way, you should be in adult Sunday school every Sunday if you aren't. Rich Bible teaching every Sunday by Brian Marie and Pastor Randy Pierce. You ought to be in adult Sunday school at 9.30 in the Earl Weech. That's an aside. In Genesis 3.15, sometimes called the first giving of the gospel in the scriptures, God spoke to the serpent and said this, and I, God, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve. But there's more. And God continued to say to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed. Your seed is all the unbelievers of all time. They're the seed of Satan. Those who uh, haven't trusted Christ, haven't repented of sin, haven't trusted Jesus for salvation, they are the seed, the descendants of Satan. God says there's going to be enmity between Satan and Eve and between Satan's seed, rejectors of Christ, unbelievers, and the seed, singular, of the woman, Christ. God says from now on out, from the, from the Garden of Eden, from Genesis chapter 3 on, there's going to be enmity between the Satan and Eve and between Eve's seed, ultimately Jesus Christ, and the seed of the devil, those who don't believe in Christ for all, across all the centuries. But there's more. He told the serpent, he, Christ, shall bruise you on the head. That's what I like to do to snakes. Now, some of you like snakes. I don't like snakes. I'm scared of snakes. I know there's not a, po a poisonous snake in the Bahamas, praise the Lord, but I still don't like snakes. I'm sorry. Don't think poorly of me. I, they scare me. So what I'm apt to do when I see a snake is to bruise it or to step on its head. Now, don't, please don't get mad at me. This prediction is that Christ would bruise Satan one day on the head as the serpent. Destroy him. That's the lake of fire. When, when Satan is banished to the lake of fire, in conscious torment forever. But then Jesus said to Satan, the serpent, but you will bruise Christ on the heel. You know what that is? When you are crucified, the down beam has a seat, and your arms are nailed to the cross beam, and your feet are nailed to the down beam, crossed, and there's a seat. And as you tire and as you get exhausted, you no longer can push with pain up with your legs to catch your breath, and ultimately you suffocate. That's how you die in crucifixion. And that's why they built a bonfire under crosses typically to hasten death, to hasten suffocation. But think about this. If your feet are crossed over each other and nailed to a down beam, it's going to bruise your heel. Painful. You talk about all the other pain of crucifixion. Part of that pain of crucifixion is the bruising of the heel of the foot that's pressed against that down beam. A prediction of the cross and crucifixion 
hundreds of years before the Phoenicians ever invented such a torturous way to kill people. And so the outworking of Christ's substitutionary atonement included, had to include the incarnation because it was predicted in Genesis 3, but it was fulfilled according to Jesus in John 8, 56. Jesus speaking says to the Jews listening, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, what was his day, the continuing seed of Isaac, eventually yielding Christ the Messiah. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Abraham saw Christ's day as Messiah with the eyes of faith. And it says that in Hebrews 11, verse 3. But it was also fulfilled according to Galatians 3, verses 8 and 16. Listen, for the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, and if you were a Jew, you might say, what? God can justify dogs? called Gentiles? Yeah, he can. And scripture foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, how did he do that? Saying, in you, Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. In other words, the incarnation promise given to Abraham was as if it was being preached to Abraham if he had the eyes of faith to see it. Verse 16 goes on. Now to Abraham and his seed, will you notice it's singular. It doesn't say to his seeds. No, it says, and to Abraham and his seed, that is singular, that is Christ, a human descendant of Abraham, Jewish in his humanity. And now to Abraham and his seed, Christ, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as many, but as one, and to your seed, in case we missed it, the verse says, and to your seed, who is Christ? Oh yes, the incarnation fulfilled the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, but it was a necessary thing. The incarnation was necessary. I don't know what's happened to my Dallas Seminary classmate, Andy Stanley, but he's gone off the rails. He's saying that homosexuality is not big deal. He's saying that you don't say the Bible says this or that. You say that Paul says this or that, or Peter says this or that, or Moses. He's gone off the rails. I'm sorry. Andy Stanley. I thought of Andy because the incarnation is necessary to substitution. Andy believes that it's not Big deal where Jesus came from. Don't worry about where Jesus came from, just what he did on the cross. No, you can't separate what he did on the cross from how he was virgin born. I'm sorry, Andy. He was virgin born to evidence that he was God in the flesh. The incarnation, the virgin birth of Christ is essential to the gospel. Sorry, Andy. He's my classmate at Dallas Seminary. And so... The incarnation was necessary as an equivalent substitute. Hebrews 2, 14 to 17, listen. Inasmuch then as the children, that's a reference to mankind, have partaken of flesh and blood, that is, we're human, and he himself, that is Messiah Christ, likewise shared in the same, that is, flesh and blood to be human, in the incarnation, 
He himself likewise shared in the same, that purpose. Why did he share in our humanity? Through death might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all in their lifetime subject to bondage. For he indeed did not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham, that's Christ. Therefore, in all things, he, Christ, had to be made like his brethren. Why? Purpose. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, a Bible word for satisfactory payment, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ had to be an equivalent substitute to you in as much as he had to be human, capable of physically dying, capable of having blood to be shed on the cross in order to be a perfect, acceptable propitiation, 100% satisfying God the Father's just judgment against sin as evidenced by the resurrection of Christ from the dead, Romans 425, he was delivered up for our transgressions, that's the cross. He was raised for our justification. When you share the gospel, share the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. They go together. So its outworking required the incarnation, but his outworking also required his water baptism. If the incarnation is Christ the God-man among mankind, then the water baptism of Jesus Christ was Christ the God-man identified with mankind. Now, I won't go into the details I've studied for this sermon. I don't have time. But if you go to Matthew chapter 3, essentially you will see that John the Baptist baptized for repentance from sins for the nation of Israel. But he predicted that Jesus, the Messiah, would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire to a regeneration to a new life for the believer. And you'll recall that John wanted to stop Jesus from being water baptized by John. He says, I shouldn't be baptizing you, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. He wanted to prevent Jesus from being water baptized, and Jesus prevailed. And so both of them obeyed God when John baptized Christ, and Christ subjected himself to water baptism. Why did Jesus subject himself to water baptism? All the Jews came to the Jordan River to be baptized in water by John because of their sins. Jesus had no sins. So why did he get water baptized? Because three things. It was a public identification with John's message. Second, it was a public identification with the Jews' sin problem. Jesus had no sin problem. But he was identifying with the fact that the Jews did have a sin problem. And third, it was a public identification with God the Father. And you'll recall it was a public identification of God the Father with God the Son. The dove descended from heaven, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove, and the audible voice was, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's why Jesus was baptized. It was necessary that he would be our substitute for sin. We go on. And similarly, Jesus Christ necessarily was water baptized because he had to be a similar representative to the likes of us. In this way, Hebrews 5.1. For every high priest taken from among men, Jesus is a high priest, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices. As the ultimate high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ offered himself 
as the perfect and final sacrifice for sins. That's why you don't bring a lamb to you on a sharp knife every Sunday to slaughter a lamb to render its blood to be forgiven every Sunday. There was something else involved for substitution to take place. Incarnation, baptism, third, impeccability, a fancy word to say Jesus Christ was incapable of sinning. He couldn't sin. And as the God-man, Christ could not sin. Christ, the God-man, was separated from mankind's condition. Hebrews 7, 23 to 27. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For just for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's, For this he did once for all. He offered up himself. The impeccable, incapable of sinning high priest Jesus is the only high priest who is without a peer. Without a peer. He is the high priest and the only high priest who is very God. I'm going to skip over John 8, 46. You can study that on your own. The fourth aspect of this is that the substitution of Christ means the God-man was in the place of sinners. It was predicted by Isaiah 53, 1 to 6. I'll let you study that on your own. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was buried for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Moving down, still with substitution, it's grammar. I hope you know that every part of Scripture is inspired, including the grammar, the dictionary meaning of the words in the original languages, plurality or singularity of the nouns, the tense of the verbs. Grammar is also inspired. There's two different Greek prepositions for... um, There's two different Greek prepositions in play here. Hooper, H-U-P-E-R, means for or on behalf of, or for the good of. We see that in Luke, uh, 19, Luke 22, 19 and 20. And he took the bread, the communion, and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for, Hooper, on behalf of, for the good of you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the cup. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for, Hooper, for you, on behalf of you, for the good of you. That's one grammatical fact about the preposition hooper. There's another Greek preposition, anti, A-N-T-I. It means for, instead of. And in Matthew 20, 25 to 28, we see this preposition. Listen. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life a ransom ante for many instead of many. If I had time, I would expand a little bit more on this, but let me just close with this. So how do we apply the substitutionary nature of Jesus Christ's sacrifice to pay for our sins? How is that applicable to Monday to Saturday living? Well, we apply the substitutionary work of Christ by faith, not faith in faith. I've taught you that faith is only as good as the object upon which it rests. You go from here with faith that your brakes are going to work. You go to JFK to go to the airport. Your brakes are faulty. You plow into somebody. You can say, I had a traffic incident because I put my faith in something that wasn't trustworthy, my faulty brakes. Faith in faith is worthless, but faith in Christ is the most valuable. Remember Barabbas? Then Pilate, when they had called together the chief priests and rulers and the people, said to them, you have brought this man, Christ, to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for you sent for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him for it was necessary for him to be released, to release to them one at the feast. And they all cried out at once saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate therefore wishing to release Jesus again called out to them, but they shouted saying, crucify him, crucify him. And then he said to them the third time, why? What evil has he done? I find no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. Spineless Pilate. And he released to them the one they requested, Barabbas who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. The crowd that day did not let Jesus substitute for them. They picked Barabbas. They didn't have personal faith in Christ. In contrast, the repentant thief on the cross, the repentant thief on the cross ought to really Give us pause about the theology of salvation. Luke 23, 39 to 43. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, mustering the breath that required near death, near suffocation, Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
those who cried for Jesus' crucifixion by faith not being placed in him, but faith being placed in a murderer named Barabbas to be set free among them with their women and their children and their houses and their property. Contrasted to the repentant thief who realized that Jesus on the middle cross had done nothing in the sight of God that was wrong and nothing in the sight of the courts of uh, the Romans that was wrong. And he put his faith and trust in Christ. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, assuredly, for sure, for sure, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Have you come to the place by faith to have Jesus Christ as your substitute for your sin? Your wife can't do that for you. Your husband can't do that for you. Your parents can't do that for you. Your grandparents cannot do that for you. Your pastor cannot do that for you. Your friend who's in this church serving can't do that for you. Only you can reach out with the hand of faith, turning from sin and self and Satan to the Savior and pull foot full trust and faith in Jesus and only Jesus. Like the thief on the cross, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's how a person gets right with God. That's how the substitutionary blood-shedding sacrifice of Jesus Christ is appropriated to a sinner like me or a sinner like each of you. Coming to this church and this sanctuary no more makes you a born-again Christian then going into a garage makes you a mechanic. Don't leave here today without a savior who's substituted for you. Trust him and only him. We've seen people die this past week that we'd never expected were gonna die. But they did. Our life is a vapor. There's no more important thing to settle in one's life is one's eternity, where one will go after one dies. I leave that with you. If you want to help to know about how to trust Christ as your Savior this week, phone me, come and see me. Not just me, any staff member, any born-again Christian in the assembly can help you. But you're not saved until you receive the gift. You receive the gift by faith in Christ. May we be recipients of his grace.